With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Growing up in McAllen, Texas, Elisa Villanueva Beard was a stellar student. But in college, she struggled big time. She just wasn't as academically prepared as a lot of her peers. That experience seeded her lifelong mission for educational equity and inspired her to join Teach for America as a core member. Today, Elisa is its CEO. We talk about what she learned in the classroom, how she became a champion for students, and what it will take for all of our kids to have a world-class education. All right, Elisa, we're going to try to get through this without my children and your children interrupting us. But if they interrupt us, so be it. Take me back to 1998. You're a TFA core member teaching first, second grade bilingual education in Phoenix. Tell me about your very first day in the classroom. Wow. Okay. My very first day in the classroom, I had been anticipating having 28 kids. That's what I had prepared for. I went out to get my kids and I, in fact, had um, 36 kids had sort of joined my line. (laughs) Whoa! By the time I made it to my classroom. And what was a little bit nerve-wracking about that as I was walking to the class, I was thinking, oh my gosh, Um, I was expecting 28 kids. I prepared stuff for 30 kids and I don't have enough desks and I don't have enough materials. Anyway, we walk into the classroom. I had half the class sit on the floor, half the class in desks. And I had no books, Alicia, at at this time in 1998. There are no books, no curriculum. And so, um, you know, we got through the first day and at the end of it, I just cried. And I was like, what am I doing? What am I going to do? The stakes of the moment, I deeply felt because I knew my kids had to read. I, I realized that first day, most of them didn't know their letters and it was first grade. Um, and so I just had to 
regear and sort of got really grounded really quickly on sort of what, what was going to be needed of me and of my kids and of their families and sort of every mentor I could go grab to, to help me figure out how we're going to do this. What was the big lesson of that first year? I think the most important lesson that sort of keeps me going over 20 years later is um, our kids can do anything. Mm. Um, And so I sort of believe that in my heart when I started to teach and thought, I really believe kids have just boundless potential and we got to approach them and treat them that way. And my parents had very high expectations of me. Um, And so that, that sort of was my orientation. But you did sort of realize when you expect everything of kids and then you wrap your arms around them and you love them and you provide all the additional supports because there's so many supports that our kids need beyond just the teaching and what's expected of a teacher, given, you know, all the challenges that they come in with, you realize our kids can do anything. And, And that's what keeps me grounded, but it's also what keeps me really outraged about it all because you start to see when you take classroom by classroom and then now whole schools and even whole systems, you're able to see kids can actually do this. It's not that they don't have the potential, that they're not as smart as the next kid. It's like literally they don't have access to the opportunities and the resources. And that is just completely unjust. Like that's the thing where you're like, that's just not fair. And we all have to care deeply about that fact in our country and and then be on a mission to do something about it. Did that experience teaching in Phoenix track with your own experience as a student growing up in McAllen, Texas? So I grew up in schools that, you know, were under-resourced, and I didn't realize that I went to Title I schools growing up. I didn't understand that as my experience until after I got out of it. I grew up in, in environments where my teachers were so caring, really grounded in our culture, which in retrospect, after going to college, realized how rich my culture is and the family ties, and my families were very rooted in our faith, and it's very powerful. And so I felt very supportive. I grew up in very structured environments. And so the things that I didn't quite get, although I had an incredible teacher my junior year that I feel like really pushed on the critical thinking skills, communication skills that are needed that I I felt like I had to catch up on. There was just a lot of um, exposure that I didn't have um, that my peers did when I went to school in Indiana. And so really was behind and compared to the educations that my other um, friends had had. And everyone was doing their best in the context, but it's one of those, like, you sort of don't know what you don't know. I sort of didn't realize what I wasn't getting until I got put in a context where that became evident. It's interesting, though, what you say about your teachers and being rooted in culture. And it it is, I think, the benefit of growing up Mexican-American in McAllen or growing up Cuban-American in Union City, New Jersey, which is I had a lot of Latina teachers. Like, I actually was very associated with my teachers in that way, and there was that cultural fluency. And I didn't understand until later how that makes a huge difference in the life of a student and the life of a child. Yeah. And, you know, there's more research today that shows how important that is actually for kids to be able to see themselves and their teachers and be validated and humanized in a way that's just, you sort of don't understand unless you can associate that way, which is why it's a big focus for us at Teach for America as, you know, we bring new teachers into classrooms. Um, we know the importance of that. And of course, it's important for kids to see all sorts of backgrounds. I grew up with mostly Mexican-American teachers, and I also should have exposure to teachers that are, you know, 
all sorts of colors and, and shapes and backgrounds and have really come to realize the importance of just diversity of experiences, backgrounds that all kids really need exposure to. Is there something that's getting in the way of you living the life you want, of you being happy? In my own life, I have found that talking with a professional can make a big difference. But sometimes the logistics, finding the right person, the time to connect, gets in the way. BetterHelp Online Counseling assesses your needs and matches you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can get help on your own time, in your own space. In fact, you can start communicating in under 24 hours. You can schedule secure weekly video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist anytime. BetterHelp's licensed professional counselors specialize in everything from grief and trauma to relationships and self-esteem. BetterHelp is committed to helping you find the perfect fit, so it's easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. Plus, it's more affordable than offline counseling. I want you to start living a happier life today. As an LTL listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Latina. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Latina. I want to make sure I got, I have this right. Your mom never graduated from high school, taught herself English. Your dad, first in his family to go to college. Is That's that right. all right? That's exactly right. Yeah. How did their experiences shape your education? Yeah. So my mom, I mean, my both my parents are extraordinary and people are like, who are your heroes? It's it's my parents, just very simply, um, because their stories are really extraordinary. And so my mom came to the U.S. at the age of 17, and as you said, with a formal eighth grade education. And she quickly realized, like, education is the pathway to opportunity. And so beyond her teaching herself English, and she became a florist and a manager of a florist and become an entrepreneur. They own real estate now. And I mean, their story is extraordinary. Her first move was, if I'm going to get married, I need to marry a man with a college degree, which is quite literally how she chose my father. I mean, that was her number one criteria. She said, looks will come and go. That's like that's that's like not even at the top of the list. And my dad is handsome, by the way. But, you know, she said, I'm going to marry a man with a college degree because I know my kids' life options will be different. So my parents met while he was still in college. He was a firefighter by night. And then we go to school during the day and was supporting his mom. And he wanted to get married before they, he got his, he graduated from college. And my mom said, no, until you graduate from college, I will marry you. So they did. And that- She wanted the it, papers. She did. <laughs> That was what she did. She was so clear how that ended up shaping me and my siblings is education was front and center. My mom always told, we're three girls and one boy, and she always told us girls, like, I don't want you to have to depend on anyone for anything. So you're going to get your education. You're going to go to college. These are not options. And she was a huge advocate for us. My older sister, I remember in fifth grade, um, her fifth grade teacher contacted my mom and said, uh, your your daughter's going to get retained because she's not, she's not reading well enough. She's not ready. It, this was January. So my mom showed up and said, I want to let you know with the principal, Mr. Garcia, my daughter's not getting retained. Um, and I need you to tell me what I need to do for my daughter 
and I will do it because that's not that's not an option. My sister became an avid reader because my mom would just sit with her and make her read for an hour a day. <laughs> and she did what needed to be done. But I mean, my mom was a fierce advocate for us. And so all of that really shaped all of us. I sort of was the kid that did everything right going to high school. Um, I was student body president. I was top kid in my high school academically. I was a basketball player. I was, I was pretty good too. And so I was really set up and had done everything right before I got to college. It is such a hard transition and it's a story we hear again and again. Top of your class, big fish, and what you don't realize is a small pond. You went all the way to Indiana for college. You continued to play basketball. You show up at campus by yourself. I mean, you must have felt so overwhelmed, like a fish out of water. I mean, I can't even imagine being that far from home and sorting through all of that. Yeah, it was... um it was pretty extraordinary when I looked back and thought, what gave me the guts to do that, to like show up to college by myself? Being 18, that's it, right? Like <laughs> Maybe I've, that's I've it. Never braver than when I was 18. <laughs> that's probably true. An important part of that story is though, Mr. Joe Disk, who was, who was an incredible mentor and has since passed away, but he and his wife are truly, she was my biology two teacher, Ms. Karen Disk. They're why I ended up at DePaul University. Um, she went there and he sort of just took this interest in me. And he's from Indiana originally, went to Purdue and IU Law and um, got to know my family starting my junior year. And, and just, uh, he just kept saying, Elisa, you're extraordinary. You can do anything. I want you to get out of your comfort zone. And that's how I ended up at DePaul. He did show up that first day of school with me. I mean, I didn't know who's going to be there, but as I pulled up in a van that had picked me up from the airport, he was there waiting for me. And so he he was my parent that day. And it was pretty extraordinary. I felt like I had I was in a different country altogether. What was most stunning about it, I will say, is that I thought, wow, getting used to just a community that was predominantly white, middle, upper middle class white, um, and 3% Latino, 5% black at the time. I, I was a bit intimidated by that and thought this is going to be really hard. And just, it felt like really hard to relate to each other's lives culturally in every way. But I quickly realized that that was quite energizing for me. I I learned that I'm a very adaptable person and I can sort of connect with different groups of people, which has become, a I think, a, a strength and, and has served me well in my career. But I, what I didn't expect was that I would be underprepared for the rigors of college because of all you just heard me say. And that was the most traumatizing thing. And even when I reflect on it, I sort of get emotional because it was so hard, Alicia, to be like, I'm ready. I checked every box. Everyone told me I was ready. I worked really hard. And then you feel completely lied to. You're like, oh my God, did, did everyone know this was going to happen to me? And what was the, like the toughest part about it was because I was quote unquote a minority on campus and you're not doing well. And I'm the kid that like work, I work really hard. That's what I learned from my parents, like dedication and hard work. You don't quit. That's me. So I'm like getting up at 4 a.m. to study on Saturdays and Sundays, like for 14 hours. And I'm still getting C's and C minuses. And so you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not smart enough. I can't hang with these people. Like maybe it's true. Maybe why people are smarter than me. I And when you start to internalize that, it's so dangerous and so traumatizing. So I called my mom three months in and said, 
mom, I'm not going to make it. Like truly, there's nothing more I can do. I've never been more focused. I've never been more doing everything right. Um, and I'm, I'm not pulling it off. And my mom listened. And then she, she said, Mijita, I'm so sorry that it's, it's so hard for you. But I said, I think I'm going to have to come home. And she said, you're not welcome home until you complete your degree at DePaul University. That's where you said you're going. That's where you are. And that's where you're going to do it. You can do this. So I can't help you with that, but you should maybe get off the phone and go back to studying. So how did you turn that corner? There was something about um, the fact that I just knew there was no other option. So even the energy when, you know, at night you're, you're laying there and you're like, maybe I should just go home. Maybe I just can't do it. That was now out of my head because I'm like, there's no going home. I just have to just keep keep doing it. I think one some of the moves I started to make is I started to ask for help, which was another good leadership lesson I learned early on. I just went to my professor and finally said, I am doing everything I know to do. Can you help me? Like who who can I who should I ask? Here's what I'm doing. What am I doing wrong? So I started to get different kinds of help. My professors became invested in me. I did find one Latina professor who was not even my teacher, but I'd met her at a thing. And so I went and made an appointment with her and was able to tell her this, like what I was really going through. And she leaned in and helped me, which was extraordinary and was really helpful for me and mattered a lot in, in that trajectory. And so that's what I did. I did terribly my first semester. I did better my second semester and then I was flying. Then I was like on the Dean's list, you know, then I was like, Oh, I'm, I can do this better than a lot of the kids I'm with. Actually, (laughs) that was what ended up starting to fuel my deep passion and outrage for educational inequity. Cause I started to understand like, Oh, where did I grow up? I, you know, we placed core members where I went to school. I had no idea. And, you know, and I, I realized like, wow, my dad was the only college graduate in my whole neighborhood where we lived. I didn't understand the context in which I was growing up. I grew up in a very rich community in so many ways that have kept me grounded. And I think it's it's why I am who I am today, but hadn't realized the lack of access and opportunities. And so um, that's what set me on the path to Teach for America. And here we are. More than 20 years later. More than 20 years later. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. 
at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Hey, today I want to tell you about a new podcast I am loving. It's called Dear Young Rocker. Remember the 14-year-old version of you? Awkward, insecure, the weirdo in you, fiercely independent but longing to connect? In this narrative podcast, join House Chelsea Urson as she relives her teen years, struggling to feel cool enough to exist and finding a home in music. Each episode dives deep into teen Chelsea's journal entries as she navigates school, family, relationships, and joining her first band. And occasionally, adult Chelsea chimes in with advice for her younger self. At the same time that it offers a poignant, funny look at what being a teenager is like, Dear Young Rocker also creates honest dialogue around the issues of body image, gender power dynamics, and mental health. And it shines a spotlight on the way those are magnified during our teen years. After three years in the classroom, you became the leader of the organization's Rio Grande Valley region. Why leave the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I loved being a teacher, I will say. And that third year was awesome. It was so fun. And I feel like I was really finding my groove. But there were two things going on. One is I did really want to get back to Texas and wanted to get back to my community. And that was a sort of a dream and a thing I really wanted. Secondly, I taught first grade, as you said, for two years. And then I looped up with my kids in my third year and taught second grade. And that was incredible. So I, I had this set of kids for two years and they were, it was awesome. What was really bothersome to me was that at my school, we had a 60% attrition rate every year at my school. But the reason I ended up leaving is beyond wanting to get back to Texas is I, I'm like, there's the system isn't working for the kids. And so how do you start to solve that? We need a great third grade teacher and then a great fourth grade teacher and fifth grade teacher. And what's going to happen to my kids once they're there? And so I thought I was going to be a school principal. I was going to go run the the organization in the Rio Grande Valley first, where I grew up, and bring in those teachers, ensure that they're doing a great job in my community. And then after I get that sort of experience, which is more administrative, I'm going to then go become a principal. Like that's sort of going to be what I do because I was watching what principals could do. 2015, you become the solo CEO. And again, it's, it's a tumultuous time for TFA. Applications are down at that time. You have alums who are publicly criticizing the organization. What steps did you take to right that ship? Yeah, there were two decisions I made. The first was that I really believed I was the right person to lead us forward in that moment, where I had sort of turned a page and said, I need to just be me. I need to take the wisdom of my experiences, the wisdom of just who I am and how I show up, and that's what's needed. And so 
that sounds so simple and so sort of maybe strange, but it was so freeing to just say, I am who this organization needs right now and I can do this. And secondly, I wasn't afraid. Um, so it's not that I was reckless and like, oh, I have, I'm fearless. I wouldn't describe me as that way. I would describe me as unafraid, calculated, understanding the stakes of the moment, but also saying, I'm going all in. I'm not, I'm not going to be afraid to not do well. I'm not going to be afraid that I don't know what to do. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just going to go do. I'm going to like figure out how do I stay centered? What Be very clear on what matters most, which is impact on students and what we are all about and be able to cut through that and then make any decisions around that. It was a very hard time. I had to move fast to like make big moves, put people in the right roles in order to to drive us forward. Um, and we did start to see results like a year. I mean, we we pretty quickly, once we we got momentum and, and started to see the moves we were making really did matter and were the right ones. You have said, we're a controversial organization and I've come to accept that. What do you mean by that? I think what we do isn't always intuitive for some folks, right? We're focused on, first of all, outcomes for kids. And that that's ultimately the thing that anchors us. And, and it's impact in classrooms, but it's also like systems impact. Like, what are we contributing to actually change the conditions for children so that they have the opportunities they deserve? The idea that you're taking mostly 22-year-olds right out of college who have not intended to go into education, who have not studied education. And I have deep respect for the education for teachers. My sisters are teachers um, and didn't come to Teach for America. I deeply respect that. And we're taking folks, though, that haven't studied it. And um, and our model is just different. And our model begins with selection and who we select. You know, so we accept about, you know, 10 to 12 percent of applications. Last year, we had near 60,000 applications. And, and then we provide a training program. We never say that our teachers are going to be excellent on day one. That's not possible. Um, but what we do, we prepare them to be able to step into classrooms and then we support them. And what I've also come to learn is every first year teacher, no matter how you come into the classroom, has a very hard time. It is a very steep learning curve and we all just have to be committed to learning together. And so it's not about TFA. I mean, for me, the way I orient, it's like, we can't do this alone. We need to be in deep partnership with others. And that's what we're committed to. And we don't have the answers at TFA. We don't have all the answers. We have incredible leadership that will go through walls for children. And that's what I—that's what we do offer. We have folks who are smart, are high, high achievers, are really care about kids and, and want to work with others to get things done. And it takes, I think, a combination of talent from all over to come into communities more and more, I will say, our core members are from the communities that they grew up in. 50% of them are people of color, um, which is pretty extraordinary. A third are first-generation college graduates. On average in America, 80% of teachers are white. About 20% are people of color. So it's a really important contribution that we're making. But I think our model and how we bring people in has sometimes, you know, just is not intuitive. But I stay grounded in it because we, our teachers have shown great results and and. The most important thing is we got to do this alongside others, and that's the only way to to make you know real progress as a community. After quarantine, I think all parents who are homeschooling now want to pay teachers, you know, like a million dollars. But those memes aside, there's a radical awareness of the hard work teachers do and how under resourced and underpaid most of them are. Do you have a sense of how you'll use that awareness to form? policy proposals or revise how TFA operates? Like, does this change your approach at all? 
yes, everyone is somehow connected in a teacher some way these days and is coming to realize, wow, how hard this actually is. And I will admit, even in my household, I have my husband and I are former teachers and we have four sons, 12, 10, eight, and five. And it's been so hard and and half chaotic as we also try to work full time. I described to someone the other day, like, it feels like we have, we're in a never ending slumber party in my house these days. I told my husband I was going to go take the trash out and he said, Enjoy those two minutes to yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what it's come to. Exactly. I think what, you know, is pretty stunning about it and what I'm most thinking about, Alicia, is, how, you know, just um, how hard teachers and school leaders and district officials are really working to make this pivot into, you know, the virtual learning. I mean, we all know what the data says. Like, actually, virtual learning, it's really not effective. It's very, very, very difficult to do, and it's very difficult to do well, and, and you know, and we're just not prepared for it. The thing that's most on my mind about it is how it's impacting kids in low-income communities, because it's hard for everybody. But it is pretty unimaginable what is happening for our own kids that— are worried about the basics and have always worried about the basics. It's always been challenging, but now it becomes like impossible situations where a lot of our our kids' parents are essential workers. So A, they're putting their lives in danger. So no, they don't have time to sit with their kid to do online learning. And that's assuming they have a computer. That's assuming they have access to broadband. That's assuming they know how to navigate the technology. It's really, really difficult. So our kids who are traditionally, on average, already behind because of just all these systemic things, not because they can't do it. I mean, this is devastating um, for our children. And what we do about that is what's most on my mind and how we're going to address how it's disproportionately impacting our kids. So what's on my mind is how do we prepare ourselves to be out of school through the summer. And I know there's going to be lots of pushes for summer school. Um, I'm really worried about how that'll actually come to life. And then how do we prepare ourselves for this to happen again in the fall? And to start to pivot and ask ourselves, we're in crisis mode now and we're TFA, we're trying to focus on like, what's the next horizon that we need to be preparing for? As Latinas, so many of us are raised to believe in the importance and power of education. I was listening to your story and it could very well be my own or Mm. pretty much any girlfriend that I have. How do you square that just fundamental belief in education with the gaps that exist in the education Latinos are offered? Our families tend to really trust that schools are preparing their kids. And a lot of them are super grateful, right? Immigrant parents are like, gosh, I'm just so grateful. My kids have access to a school. It has resources. Teachers are kind and, and, you know, everyone's doing their best. But what is not revealed in that is often the high expectations or the like rigorous curriculum, it just all hasn't caught up to the intentions that I believe every educator has. It's not about educators. It's like a system that isn't built, you know, for that. And it's beyond the school, Alicia, that I just think is so important. It's like when you don't have access to dental care. I had kids in my class that first year and then every year, but I I didn't understand this fully they had headaches. Like I remember Jasmine, headaches. And I'm like, Jasmine, are you bored? Like, why do you have your head down every day? I'm like really doing everything to be entertaining here. And she's like, Master, I just have a headache. So I finally sent her to the nurse. And after a few times we realized she, her, her teeth are rotten. She had never seen a dentist. They didn't brush her teeth. They didn't know to brush their teeth. And so I finally asked my kids, wait, 
does everyone brush their teeth? No. So then I read, wrote a grant to like get a program of like for the school to like teach our kids how to about dental hygiene. And you don't share toothbrushes and you brush your teeth twice a day. These are basics that we all, t- that a lot of us take for granted. Kids sharing beds, like the basics. So we have to start seeing this as an interconnected systems problem. And it's not like, oh, well, if only schools would get their act together, if only those teachers or their principals or the district. No, it's a community problem. And we need an, an understanding how interconnected all these things are. Healthcare with schools and the justice system and schools and how it all plays out is so important. And I think we need to just really elevate sort of that conversation and say, what as a community are we all going to do to lean in to educate kids? And I think this moment is showing us that schools can't possibly do this alone. And we need to support each other. And, and more importantly, we all need to see every kid as our kid. Like the I, like I, I, the language of those kids. No, no, no. They're your kids. They're part of your community. Um, and you don't think this is going to impact your economy or your social system. It, it is. And so um, I think we all have to just figure out how do we take responsibility for every child in our community and figure out what, what do we need to be doing to meet their needs and ensure that we take care of our kids, which I think is our most important job as adults. Listen, we made it through. Our children did not interrupt this. So thank you so much. Thank, please thank all of them for me, especially the five-year-old. That's thank incredible you. restraint. <laughs> On his part. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Cedric Wilson is our sound designer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. Manuela Bedoya is our intern. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the quickest and easiest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.